If you have your Bibles with you, open them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter number 2. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1129. Uh, And it is always a good habit to have a Bible open in front of you just so you can say, is what he said in there? And uh, so you can look for yourself, look and see. Uh, We are beginning our study this morning in verse number 13. We've been going through a study in the Gospel of John, for those of you visiting with us, and here we're at this um, interesting moment where Jesus cleanses the temple. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 13, and we're going to read on down uh, to verse 25. You can follow along as I read. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep, pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? He said, answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Well, one more time, bear with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just praise you for your word. Thank you for it. God, I do pray for Eric Groover, Grover, as he and his uh, and his family begin their first service of the church plant there in uh, Georgia. Just pray that you would bless them this morning, in Christ's name, Amen. Well, in 1510, Augustinian monk Martin Luther made his pilgrimage to Rome. It was 700 miles walking. Uh, I don't think we were that dedicated today, are we? Uh, Someone had suggested it was through a harsh winter that he finally arrived in that holy city, Rome. Uh, He, as he come to the city, began blessing uh, the city and thanking God for it. As he left, his tone had changed dramatically. He went through all the sites and tried to go through confessions and see all the relics that Rome had on display. It was more of a circus than it was anything uh, sacred. He even went up the uh, Scala Sancta on his knees. Those were the stairs that were imported from Jerusalem, said to be the steps that Jesus went up as he was on trial for uh, uh, being condemned by Pilate. On his knees, each step, saying the Lord's Prayer so his grandfather could be released out of purgatory. When he got to the top of the steps, his doubt and his confusion had fully taken on. And he says to himself, who knows if it's true? The peace he sought 
to find and the the grace that he hoped to receive and all of his expectations were shattered all he found was corruption greed and idolatry and he left disenchanted with a whole experience to put it another way his trip didn't look like the brochure maybe you've been on vacation you thought it was like that you seen the pictures and you got there and you're like somebody's a good photographer it just doesn't look like that Personally, I thought Egypt was that way in my experience. You see the pyramids and all that, and all I seen was uh, buildings and more buildings. Well, we come to a passage that deals with the idea of pilgrimage to a degree. It is the time of Passover. Uh, The Jews were required to attend the feast, and they would come from all all over the world Uh, this time of year to celebrate the Jewish holiday, the Passover. For those of you going back to your Sunday school days, Passover was a time in Exodus when God uh, gave or or sent on Egypt his last act of judgment, his last plague of the ten to deliver the children of Israel out of their bondage and slavery. You might recall God commanded the nation to kill a lamb and place the blood on the doorpost and on the top of the door and that as the death angel would pass by, the inhabitants of that house that was covered or shielded by the blood would be spared. They would live and and so that was given to the nation of Israel and they were delivered. They were passed over from that fate. And so... Uh, Hence the name, this holiday, this celebration of Passover. It was a holy holiday and it was meant to be celebrated continually because we're forgetful. The children of Israel were forgetful as well, we know, but they were to be reminded of what God did in delivering them from bondage. Following it would be a feast of unleavened bread. Now during this time of the Passover, as Jews were coming, there would be Something around Josephus, a historian of the day, said 2.7 million. I don't know how he counted that, but 2.7 million people filling this town of Jerusalem. Its normal season was a couple of hundred thousand. So you could imagine the bustle and the hustle of people. uh, Literally everywhere you could put a person, there was a person uh, in this city. It was a time of great celebration. It was a time looked forward to when families would gather together on their journey many of which singing psalms and songs much like Tim read to us this morning Psalms 122 that song of ascent they call it a psalm of ascent because they would go up to Jerusalem and go up to the temple that center point of the Jewish religion the temple of God well, on a focus of our passage in chapter number two, Jesus and his disciples and <clears throat> those who were along with him went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And what John wants us to see here is what Jesus saw and how Jesus responded to what he saw as he arrived. We're brought to understand the action. And what it, in some ways it kind of bothers us. It brings out and paints a picture of Jesus that we're not used to. We know that Jesus who is compassionate and who is loving and who is meek and mild and tender. But here we see the, the Jesus who is angry. The one who both loves and hates. 
The one who acts out of anger as much as he acts out of compassion in the story before it, turning water into wine. Your Bible, if you have an ESV, may suggest this passage or this section as being Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, It could be Jesus cleaning up the clutter or however you want to label that. It's very similar to what you find at the end of his ministry. The last Passover Jesus would attend, the last week of his passion, when he would go into Jerusalem and one last time clean up the temple and make a declarative statement uh, about who he is in his father's house. As some suggest it's confusing and it may be the same event. I doubt that's the case. I don't agree with that. But nevertheless, it shows us that Jesus began and ended his ministry in the same way. And that is his zeal for his father's house, his zeal for his father's fame and glory and the worship uh, due him. Well, I want us to first notice in this passage the action of Jesus and as we set up kind of as we set up the context of what's going on in the in the time we see Jesus in action and we notice that in the first few verses that we read verse 13 and on let me read them again for you the passover the jews was at hand and jesus went up to jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there that's pretty common and very helpful in some ways They were there set up to accommodate the worshipers who were coming from far off. If you were going to worship God in his temple and you needed a sacrifice, you wouldn't drive a a sheep or or carry pigeons or drive an oxen hundreds of miles. and, And by the time you get there, not even know if it was good enough to be offered up before God. It was just much easier to sell the thing at home and bring a little bit of money and buy the thing there that was high priest approved. I don't know if it had a stamp on it, but you, you, you see what's going on here. It was helpful so that the people could come and, and worship God. And they would have the sacrifices uh, laid out, and these sacrifices were approved by the temple priest and the, and the leaders of that day. The second thing you notice in verse number 14 is not only do you see those selling oxen and sheep and providing a service for the worshipers there, but you see them also exchanging money. Roman coins had the inscription of Caesar on them, most of which claimed to be some sort of God, and so it would have been sacrilegious for them to take them in as far as payment for the temple. And so they would need to exchange that to a more uh, pure and less defiling uh, currency, which is a Tyrian coin. It was a high-quality silver. And so men 20 years of age and older would go and pay a half-shekel tax, and they would do that every year for the upkeep of the temple. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people giving money and paying a tax. And naturally, these people were there exchanging the coins for the approved currency to be used in the temple. Well, they were set up there in the temple of God in the place where everyone was coming to in the center location, verse number 14. And notice with me Jesus' response. It says that Jesus saw what was going on. He made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned 
their tables. Now, you have to use your imagination just a little bit, but you can almost see the chaos that was going on. Jesus coming in, seeing the scene laid out in front of him, which would have been in the court of Gentiles, the the outer court of the temple, this wide area where the Gentiles was allowed to come and worship God and prayer would go on and those things like that. And in there, they're set up to accommodate the worshipers as Jesus comes in, not premeditated. He didn't make a plan before he goes to Jerusalem to say, I'm going to do this and see what they do. No, at seeing all that was going on, it says he takes a couple of ropes and he makes a whip out of them and he drives out the cattle in their cellars and he turns over the tables of money and you could almost see in your imagination the guy scrambling around at the coins on the ground trying to get it all before somebody else does. It is a passionate act. Uh, It is a prophetic act. Going back to Amos chapter number 3 verse 1 and 2, the Bible the Bible anticipates this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Jesus, they did not know him this way, but John wants us to know as we get to this point, Jesus is the incarnate word. He is the divine son of God. He is dwelling among us, God in flesh, and he goes into his father's house. And at at seeing what they have made of his father's house, he throws everything over and he drives everything out and no one does anything to stop him. It's remarkable, isn't it? One preacher said that's a miracle in and of itself. What Jesus saw making a whip driving the people out. But why did he do it? That was his action. That's what the Bible tells us that happened. That's the scene that's laid out in front of us. But what is the assessment? How do we, what do we make of this? And Jesus cleansing the temple. Well, we know Jesus condemns what they're doing by the fact of sending them out, selling and, and, and exchanging coins in the temple. As we said, it was a a helpful thing in some ways because people needed sacrifices, but it was at the wrong place. And what we find later on at the end of the gospel is it was an abuse in the practice of it as he calls them thieves and robbers instead of making his house a place of prayer. The high priest had a a side gig going on. The, The sellers would pay a little rent for the space and give a little kickback for what they were making off of it. And, and so they were, they were like the mafia, I guess, of the, of the Palestinian time. It goes to show you that religion can be a profitable business, still is in our day. But that isn't what he points out in the passage John wants us to see. They've taken all of the sacredness, all of the holiness, all the solemnity or the the gravity of what the temple is and what it was meant to be. And they discarded it and made it equal to Walmart. And I just say Walmart because you know how easy it is to lose your religion in Walmart, right? (laughs) You're trying to find somebody to check you out or get that thing to work on the self-checkout and you're thinking, man... What does the world come to? 
But that's what he says to them here in, as he goes on and he, he drives them out, overturns it in verse number 16. And he told those selling the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade, a house of merchandise, the daughter general store. You, you have taken what has meant to be holy pilgrims traveling from all over the world to seek God and worship him. And you've made it a trade, a fair, a marketplace, a town circus. They had little regard for the holiness of God. They had little regard for the impact or the statement of the things in which they were doing. Well, they, they did it under the guise of helpfulness. They did it under the guise of accommodating for those who were traveling. But, but that's, the, that's, the, that's just the cover-up. Jesus says, what you have done is you've taken this holy place, this sacred place, and you've turned it into a... You've turned it into a store, a supermarket. Carson paints this well in his commentary on this. He says, instead of solemnity or solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration, prolonged petition, there is a noisy commerce. Instead of going to seek God, you go and, and you make your deal. Worshippers coming to see the, the magnificent temple, the centerpiece of the Jewish religion. The, the magnificent statement that is meant to convey what it looks like, the place of God dwelling in the midst of his people. The pinnacle of the religion celebrated and, and centered there at the temple. And what they were doing is they were turning it into some just common place. There was no reverence for God. And so Jesus takes action. Jesus in his passion, in his love, in his anger drives them out. And the disciples remembered later on, which you find in John often they remember later on because they didn't get the point either at the time that the zeal for your house will consume me. And Jesus is not loveless, passionless. Is not just a pushover and someone that is taken advantage of. What you see here is one who is moved with passion and zeal and holy indignation for what he sees. As someone has once said, spineless love is hardly love at all. One Puritan was helpful when he said this, meekness without zeal is nothing else but lukewarmness and cowardness. Zeal without meekness generates into sinful passion. We should be meek in our own case, but zealous in the case of God. And what we see here is Jesus was far from being lukewarm about the things going on in his father's house. Worship mattered to him. In fact, he came to exploit or he came to expose the hypocrisy of the leaders of his day. It was not just a commentary on what they've done to the temple, but it is a commentary on what they've done to the worship of God himself. Now, I want to say this and, and just give you a few things you can take note of. What we see in Jesus' response was his zeal, his, his anger, his, his passion in action. It was his love on display. It was the reality that he loved deeply and greatly. He had... A, a, a large 
passionate love for the glory of his father. I think that's clear. He speaks about this love for his father's house and continually reminding us that he is here to do the father's will. His concern as he sees what they were doing in the temple is they have, they have debased his father's house. They have debased his glory, his sacredness, his, his holiness. They have, they have debased his worship for the worship of him. He acts the way he acts because he loves the way he loves his father and his father's glory. But I would say, secondly, he acts the way he acts in this story because his love for the pilgrim. Those who would come to seek God instead of finding God in a place for prayer, a place to meet with him intimately and, and worship him, they find the same common things that they would find in their own streets, in their own squares, and anywhere else they would go. They'd take away the specialness, the the sacredness of what it meant to come to Jerusalem to see the magnificent temple and to worship their God. Not only was it distracting for the pilgrim, but it was also distracting or it was also deterring them from true worship and true life, as you find out later on in the Gospels and all the things they added to what it means to be saved. But thirdly, I think it was a love for the Gentiles. The only court they were allowed to go in, and that's where they set up shop. The only place they could come and seek God. The only place they could offer up worship and prayer. The, the only place where they could uh, lay hold of the Old Testament promises of the restoration of the nations coming before God and, and being restored to him like Zechariah eight twenty one, where he says, The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go up once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many people and strange nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from the nation of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And you see the image of what they find in the day of Jesus when they go to Jerusalem. Their place, the only place hallowed out for them, is nothing more than a market fair of, of, of trade and a den of thieves and robbers. It is for these reasons, his love in these ways, that Jesus acts the way he acts. I want to ask you a question. What angers you? That's probably a silly question. There's a lot of answers to that. But what bothers you the most what sticks at you and gets you and moves you to, to take action? Not just notice, not just hear something and just pass it off, but what moves you to a place of action, to unsettledness, to, to do something about the news or what you've seen or heard? Is it when someone takes the name of the Lord in vain? Does that move you? Does that disturb you when they take the sacred name of our Savior? And his father, and they use it as a byword, a cuss word. Does it bother you or, or does it stir in you? Are you brought to anger and in action when you see people hurt or abused? Or when you see people given over to idolatry? All across the world, people worshiping in temples and shrines and their altars and under the guise of some foreign dignity, some... Uh, some foreign god, deity, and, and, and all of it, does that stir your heart? Does that bother you? 
see people led astray. Or when others distort and misuse scripture for their own gain. As if they stand wearing two uniforms. You know, they, they're, they're the author of confusion. And the top part of the uniform is Christian. The bottom part is the world. And you don't know where they stand and what they stand on. Someone shared with me, Doug actually shared with me this week, an article of a church in Houston, Texas. They put on a drag queen show uh, to raise money as a, it was a bingo show for children. Raise money for clothing for children. Does that anger you? You say, what does Texas have to do with that? What, is, what, is, what does Texas have to do with us? In some ways, it has a lot to do with us because you and I hear news. We see things like this. We're, we're touched. Our lives are touched by that. And too often, we're not moved at all by these things. It's just the way things are. That's what we tell ourselves. Especially in a culture where we live and let live and just you mind your business and I'll mind my business and go on. And, and, and if, the, the, if the love of God is in us, if the love of our neighbor, if the love of what is right and what is true, if it guides our life, if we're growing in that, then we don't stand apathetic to the things that are going on around us. In fact, I would say one of the, one of the dangers of the church in our day is our apathy. So little moved by the state of the church in the world as we see its lost grip on the holiness of God driven by felt needs and convenience and, and its circus program. Oh, that God would stir us. And I say that as a, as a word of confession and a prayer that God would stir us and let us grow deeper into the love of God and who he is so that we too might be Moved by that great love that we have for others, that love that we have for God. I want you to notice thirdly, we see the assessment of what Jesus did, but notice thirdly the question that's posed at him, the authority, Jesus' authority. We already stated Jesus does these things and no one stops him, no one says anything to him, and rightfully so because no one ever spoke like Jesus. And he says to them, or the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? That's an odd question to answer. You seem to think that what's going on in their mind is what in the world are you doing? Hey, man, what's the matter with you? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right to do this? Uh, there's something in, in this question. They don't question the rightness of his actions, I think, because it was self-evident that what they were doing was wrong. But they do question his authority. And so instead of asking those kind of questions, they go back to this reality. Maybe he really is somebody. Maybe he is a prophet sent from God. Show us a sign. Give us a miracle. Give us something to validate what you're asking and, or what you're doing. They don't ask him why, but they ask him to show. It is enough. It ought to be enough. Jesus' very act of driving out the people and doing what he did ought to be enough to drive the priest and the religious leaders in the temple to repentance and faith. It ought to be enough to wake them out of their stupor to the reality of what they have done 
uh, in the worship of God and what they have done to the name of God. But they are slow. Instead, they ask him, show us a sign. Maybe it's an attempt to domesticate God. Maybe they're trying to say, if you show us something, then we'll believe in God. You show us God, do a mighty work, and then we'll believe and we'll follow him. Maybe that's what's going on. And that is a terrible place to live. Because so many people in our country, in our world, live in a world that if I just see enough stuff, then finally I'll believe and I'll turn to God. It's like a bottomless pit. You keep throwing stuff in there and it's never satisfied. In fact, what you find at the end of this, that, that the high priest and all of, his, all of his henchmen come to the realization that Jesus has risen from the dead. And you know what they do? They cover it up. They cover it up because seeking for a sign would never satisfy them. Now, it is true that Jesus had just turned water into wine, and surely he could have done something like that in this context, right? I mean, do something amazing in this grand stage that you have in the temple outer court with millions of people in the city and and, and make your way in the next three years a little better than how it turned out. And yet Jesus does not. In fact, what he answers is, is perplexing. Notice with me in the next verse, verse 19. Show us a sign for why you're doing these things, perceiving him to be a prophet as some suggest. But verse number 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What in the world? <laughs> His disciples have no idea what he's saying, and the people there listening to him have no idea what he's saying. We want to know what's saying. What's your authority? What 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 gives you the right to do what you're doing? And Jesus responds, "Destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up." And they naturally respond as you think they would respond. Forty six years, Herod's been working on this thing. This temple's being built. It won't be finished till three years before its destruction, which is convenient. And you're going to raise it up in three days? I think it was more of a, a statement as their question, perplexity, more of a statement. Are you a madman? Are you crazy? Well, of course, they missed the point of what he's saying. At the very first of Jesus' ministry, I want you to understand and see this and maybe be reminded of this. He had on his mind what he came to do. He come knowing, understanding full well the will of the Father that he would give his life and that he would raise it up again. His death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel. Nothing deterred from it. But it's also a reminder that the greatest sign that Jesus gives these people, though they don't know it at this moment, will be in three and a half years or however the time works out, when he dies on a cross at their hands, destroying him, and in three days he is raised from the dead, no longer there. It is when God puts his stamp of approval, of vindication. This is the Son of God. This is the Holy One of Israel. This is the hope of mankind. This is Christ. That's the sign he points them to. 
In fact, we know in another place they asked for a sign. He says, no other sign will be given to you except Jonah the prophet as he was in the belly of the whale. So the Son of Man must be in the heart of the earth. He's pointing them back to all of the miracles, all of the messages, all of the things that he's saying. Is pointing them back to this great reality that he has come into the world and he will be destroyed, but he will be vindicated and rise from the dead. It will be built up. In fact, it is so amazing They use this at his trial as an accusation against him. If you've read the Passion Week of Jesus and they're saying, you know, what did he do wrong? And a guy comes up. He said he spoke evil against the temple that he'll tear it down and and raise it up in three days. You don't do that if you're a Jew, I guess, speak evil against the temple in his day. And yet we have a blessedness of second readings As we come to understand more and more the gospel, the pieces of the puzzle are put back together for us as we grow in our understanding of what Jesus came to do and what he is. One writer says this, The action of Jesus is more than an example of prophetic protest against corrupt religion. It is a sign of the end of religion. In fact, what we come to see in this question of the temple practice and and the offerings that he would tell his disciples that there will be one day when not one rock will stand on another. That the Romans will come through and wipe out and destroy and level the temple, but the worship of God will carry on. The building of his church will continue because it will not be gathered around a location, but it will be gathered around himself. It will not be gathered around a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and visit an ancient site with stones that mark all the way back in those days, but it's gathered around the name of Christ and where his word is preached and proclaimed. We don't need to go overseas to find peace and solace with God. We don't have to go on some sacrificial journey and and, and to some ancient site to find forgiveness. In fact, tonight as we gather together for communion, we come with our hands empty. Don't bring your animals. Leave them at home. We don't need them. Because Christ put an end to all sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin in his body and the destruction of his flesh so that you and I might not be destroyed. You might recall later on in John chapter number 4, he begins to tell the woman at Samaria anticipating this as she begins talking about theology. That's what you do when you're, you're confused in a conversation, you want to kind of work your way out of it. You begin to talk about theology with Jesus. So she talks about worship in the Samaritan way. She says, you, we worship here in this mountain, you worship in Jerusalem. What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, how do you get to the middle of the ground here? He says, the hour has come where there will not be in Jerusalem or on this mountain you worship God, but you'll worship him in spirit and in truth. Anticipating that the centerpiece of everything that the temple represented would be fulfilled and offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot have peace with God and acceptance and worship and solace and, and all the things that 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 God offers to us apart from a saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
It's not by a religion of works or activities of things that we can do or accomplish or, or a list of our good morality. It is all, both men, women, children, uh, from every nationality and every language and tribe coming to this one central location, location that is the person of Christ. And we can do it all over the world. And so we send missionaries, don't we, overseas. We support them, and we help them, encourage them, and pray for them so that they might tell those who are turning to, to the idols and the sanctuaries of their cities and of their towns and of their nations to turn to Christ and live. Jesus says, this is the sign I will give you. The presence of God among his people is found in the body, is found in the person of Jesus Christ, the the, the holiness of God, the acceptance, the blessing of God among his people is found in the, in the person and the body of Jesus Christ. He would be the focal point and he is the focal point of the worship of God. He has fulfilled every sacrifice. And you see that, don't you, in the Passion narrative when the veil of the temple is written to him as if God, to say, if, as if God is saying, come on in. It's open. That which was forbidden has now been has now been provided and given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And yet they wanted a miracle, they wanted a sign. Now this narrative, like every narrative in the Gospel of John, is given to us for the purpose of our faith, that we might be strengthened in who he is and what he has accomplished. You and I do not see the miracles of his day that's written here. Not like the people that were there. But we've been given the substance behind them. John even explains to us here, so we're not wrapped up. What in the world are you talking about? The temple, Jesus, as he says in verse 21, John breaks in as a commentator here. And he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body And when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed him, the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. You and I have been given the substance of these things, the meaning, the understanding of what Jesus was pointing to, what John wants us to see, what we find in in Christ. You know, it is no small thing that the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and not by seeing. It is not a mistake or a misprint. In fact, John says the very same thing. Thomas sees the risen Savior and he believes, doesn't he? And Jesus says, oh, now you believe? You wouldn't believe the testimony of your friends, but now you believe when you see? But he says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And that's where we are. By hearing the good news of the gospel, by having to us explained and opened up what he has done and who he is, that faith is stirred in us. That's what John wants. That's what what we are to walk away with. I think verse 23 through 25 shows us the inadequacy of seeing apart, seeing, because Jesus did very many, uh, many signs and wonders among them. And many believed on his name, basically saying, we believe you're from God. We believe you're a prophet or whatever the case may be. But verse 24, 
says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. To say it in other words, some, many believed in Jesus, Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Because they were caught up in the moment. They did not set their heart after him. They did not truly trust him. They did not have faith that would point them towards him, guide them to follow him. They were just spectators and amazed at what was going on. These same kind of disciples, these same kind of believers would be the same ones that would walk away in days ahead when things get tough. The Bible encourages us to see Jesus, who he is, and to believe in him. And believing is manifested in us following him. Are you following Christ? Do you share the same loves and passions that he shares? Well, that's a good question to ask yourself this morning. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day you've given to us. Lord, we thank you for your grace that all that we need is found not in a building of stone, not in statues of gold, not in ornaments of silver, but in the person of Jesus Christ. In his death, burial, and resurrection, we find Uh, In the gospel, we find all that we need for life and godliness. Thank you for your word that that brings us face-to-face encounter with him continually. And what a privilege it is to have your word and to have that continual reminder, as Paul says, so we might be changed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, I pray here this morning that those who are here, that, that they would all have that that peace, that comfort. Find the grace that's found in him. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.